Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. Canberra taxied in June. It had been a day strike for the Army. As it taxied in, I marshaled the aircraft in. I pulled it up and the engines kept running while the armourer went in under the back of the aircraft, opened the camera hatch, checked looked the inside, mm. checked the bomb racks, mm-hmm. got down and went, thumbs, thumbs up, up, she's yep. right. Yeah. And, of course, I, I said, it was the bomb day, door opening, uh, move, arms open. Okay. Bomb do- and as the bomb door opened, the two doors opened, a 750-pound bomb went clunk. Steel rub there. At the time, a Royal Australian Air Force Sergeant Engine Fitter servicing Number 2 Squadron RAAF Canberra Bombers in Vietnam in 1968. The rest of his story about the loose bomb in the Bombay later. Hello and welcome to Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills and I am a QAM volunteer, I'm happy to say. And I'll be your host for this second of a two-part feature on the GAF Canberra Bomber. Now, if you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend you go back to last week's episode and start there. This episode will make far better sense if you have heard that one first. But before we go any further, a quick shout out to one of our listeners in the good old US of A, Pete Klukey in Georgia sent uh, an email to our historian, Ron Cuskelly, saying something along the lines, I've been enjoying the Mac One podcast from the QAM. Nicely done production and great content. Thank you, Pete. It's so nice to know you're listening all the way over there in Georgia. We have an audience all around the world, and uh, it's uh, wonderful to know that you have enjoyed our episodes so far. Um, I believe that you have uh, an interesting story yourself that perhaps one day we might try to capture uh, as, if I'm not mistaken, head of support for Lockheed's legacy aircraft. So now that would be something worth hearing about because, of course, we have a couple of representatives of Lockheed aircraft at the Queensland Air Museum. Anyway, thank you, Pete. I'm glad you're listening, and I'm glad you like the program. We like to know that you're there too. Maybe come and visit us the next time you're down under. And I have to say this. Thanks, mate. So you're about to hear the second part of Peter Grouder's recollections of serving as a navigator pilot officer in the Canberras in Vietnam in 1969-70. He retired from the Air Force as Air Commodore in command at Amberley Air Base. Steel Rudd, whose commentary follows Peter's, was, as I just said, a sergeant in Vietnam in 1968. And then he went on to retire many years later as Warrant Officer First Class and uh, Chief Instructor on F-111s at Amberley. I'm so grateful to both of these gentlemen for giving us a glimpse of the operations of the Canberras from their perspective on the ground and in the air. So, back to Steel Rudd in a moment, but first up, I continued my conversation with Peter Grouder. 
Have we touched on the main points of, of, of everyday operations? I mean, you'd go out on the sortie and return and as a debrief. Yeah. How long normally before you would be... You mentioned test flying, but ordinarily, how long before you would have to go up again? Um, you would probably fly, I reckon, five to six days a week. Um, I, I probably skipped over the mission a fair bit there before, that we, when we said, you know, you take off, you knew where you were going. Um, and you were, there was a, the air traffic was quite busy, and the Canberra. I mean, you'd be up around the twenty-four thousand feet and go to the area that you would, and then at a point you'd leave the normal air traffic control and talk to your forward air controller on the radio, who would then now start to give you more information on your target, um, what delivery. Uh, they wanted, whether it was, you know, a single bomb, the number of bombs, or how it was to be, um, the type of targets, the direction they wanted you to come from, if there's any uh, ground threat in the area. So you had a pretty standard sort of pattern that you went through, um, and then you'd find then you would, when they were ready, the uh, foyer controller would fire his rocket, uh, smoke rocket at the target area and give you corrections if they were necessary off that rocket uh, smoke. Um, the pilot, the Canberra pilot, would line up uh, and as I mentioned before there was a point in time where they would start to lose sight of the target and, and the navigator would start to give the oral directions. Um, Is that the point at which Forgive me if this is a very basic question, but is that the point at which you climb up to the front to the nose? Yes. Because you've been in the seat behind the pilot up to this point. As, as you were starting to talk, to descend to go and, and then start communicating with the forward air controller, most navigators would then move to the little jump seat that, fly, uh, that folds down out of the side okay. and sit there. Yep. So the two of you then were sitting basically side by side. Yep. Um, but then certainly... Not long after that, then the nav would go and lie up mm. in the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's quite luxurious. We, we had a foam cushion. Yeah. <laughs> you got to lie down. What are you complaining? Yeah, lying down at work. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you're the human computer, aren't you? So you're constantly calculating and checking and, and uh, updating all the way through to the target and then back? Yes. Yeah. Um, there was a... Uh, the 225 doesn't quite have it, but there's a window down underneath that mm. you could actually, once you had released the bomb or bombs, you could actually then look down and see the bombs. Okay. And, and, and you know, your aim was to count them and make sure that you released one and it had gone or a number had gone. Yep. Um, you could also see um, the impact. Would you photograph that? Yes, yeah. Um, in some aircraft we had uh, video cameras that were mounted in the weapons bay, the bomb bay. Okay. And uh, I, I hate to say it, but uh, Fridays was normally the day that the videos were critiqued by everyone. Um, I mean, every, every bomb release and impact was photographed. Mm-hmm. And then the, the weapons officer would actually score you. Um, and so... You were constantly under sort of um, monitoring mm. you know, to make sure that you were getting the best bombs, and if not, why not? Um, and then, as I said, the videos on Fridays were quite mm. um, quite critical of each other. 
as we peer groups are normally uh, seem to do. You want to get it right and yes. you want to know that you're improving all the time and so on. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, the mission then, you, you arrive at the location that you're supposed to go, you release the bombs. Do you just return straight home, straight back to base? Yes. Normally, once you'd expended all your bombs, you came back. Um, I mean, there were times where we tried to build up a, a good rapport with our Ford Air controllers down in some of the southwestern areas, and uh, they were living in you know fairly basic conditions. Mm. And so we may have an extra person on board in the in the Canberra. So swapping around uh, and doing this sort of in a, once you're airborne is is a little bit cosy, um, but we might drop off one of our people and pick up one of the Ford Air controllers and bring them back to Fan Rang for a weekend, where they I think enjoyed you know some uh, wholesome food, maybe maybe odd beer and uh, and just a bit of you know, a bit of rest and recreation in country yeah. but somewhere else okay. and. And as I said, it helped us build up a rapport with some of these people. Well, I'm sure they were pleased to see you if you were coming to pick them up and take them for some R and R for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you must have a lot of memories from that 11 month period when you were there. Pretty intense, I guess. Uh, what, what do you have? Good memories? What are your memories like for that time? Um, I think for all of us, we were young, and you, know, you, you probably tend to be good memories. Mm. Um, I mean, we uh, probably, and maybe it doesn't sound uh, professional, I'm not sure, but very early on, about the second or third night we were there, I think we got mortared and the mortar landed about 50 metres down the road and my roommate and I looked at each other and going, what was that? And we had an adjoining flap into the next door, flap through to the adjoining room and and they were old hands. They'd been there a couple of weeks longer than us. So I opened the flap and looked in, and they were quite comfortably in bed. So <laughs> I uh, said to my mum, oh, well, they're still in bed. So you know, we went back to bed. Well, it wasn't the right answer that we learned. Really? Yeah, you, it should have got up. You get dressed, you get your flak jacket on, your helmet, and go to the bunker. And we did that numerous times from then on. Well, the, the base would get mortared quite regularly and the sirens would sound, so you didn't quite know where it was all the time, but you knew, just get up and go to the bunker. Mm. Um, um, I mean, the other thing is, and you know, thinking back now, uh, communication. You know, when I, uh, you know, we all got our phones, our emails and mm. FaceTime and whatever else. Well, we had handwritten letters mm. and uh, a letter... You know, you'd write home and it would take a week to get home and uh, it would, an answer would take a week to get back to you mm. or later. So you're normally out of sync in answering letters and re- receiving letters. But, uh, and I think most of us look forward to letters. Um, the odd cake came our way, you yes. know. Um, so you know, good, good wives at home and stuff would send you something or mums would send you something. So that was always shared, you know. And, you know, you try and save that for someone's birthday or whatever. And so I think as a group, you know, there was quite good harmony. Other fun times where, you know, we all got mad on flying model aeroplanes at one stage. Really? Not very, not very well, mind you, and most of them crashed. You mean remote control aeroplanes? No, uh, these were on the on the string, you know, in those days. You oh, know, yeah. yeah, didn't have the remote control. Of course, we're talking the 1960s, yes, of course. <laughs> and <laughs> Forgive so, me. And people you served alongside when you were there. Uh, have you been able to maintain contact with them over the years? 
Yes. Some, some of them? Yeah. Yeah, quite a number. Mm-hmm. Quite a number. I mean, a number have passed, yes. unfortunately. Uh, no, on uh, Long Tan Day, uh, in fact, Brisbane, there's quite a group of us, uh, you know, some around the dozen, mm-hmm. try to get together for lunch at uh, one of the places in Brisbane. And, you know, we still communicate. And probably the other thing is a lot of them have moved through some of the aircraft that I mentioned earlier at the same time. They've been on Phantom, so they were on F-111s. F-111. Um, yep. and, and, you know, some of the pilots may have gone off to commercial mm-hmm. airlines or whatever, but, you know, you still see them and really uh, you just take up and start up where you're finished. Right, sure, yeah. What are your personal impressions of the Canberra? It was a wonderful... Um, aircraft that was designed for something probably different from what we ended up using it for. Um, you know, we and whether that's the aircraft or the Aussie way, you know, we seem to be able to take something, look at it, and work mm-hmm. out how we can just make you know it better, mm-hmm. this little bit better. Mm-hmm. Not saying it's bad, mm-hmm. but we make it better. Sure. And I think the way we were able to modify it for being a high altitude bomber being a low-altitude bomber quite successfully um, probably, again, proved that it, it's worth. Mm. I mean, it had foibles, you know. It, you certainly, in those days, most uh, commercial airliners never really went above, you know, in the low 40,000 feet. Well, the Canberra could go to about 45,000 and, you know, you could fly around above them and uh, uh, that... that Gave you a bit of immunity because you didn't have radar and your navigation systems were a bit archaic. <laughs> um, but I think that, um, you know, it's, it's fond memories, mm. fond memories of the aircraft. And probably before you were talking about, you know, its photographic role, well, you know, they also use it for target towing um, and it had a, a massive banner it would pull out the back, uh, probably on a thousand odd metres behind. And the fighter aircraft, the Mirages and whatever, would come in angle off and shoot at this mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's not a role that I was involved <laughs> in and not, not a role I particularly would like to. And as the crews who did it to me, uh, who did it, uh, said to me, uh, when they could hear the guns firing closely, they would actually talk to the pilots that the angle off was not quite sufficient. Uh, but... They said the other interesting thing was when it came back, the banner, if, uh, you know, if you had... They used to tip the bullets with colours. Mm. So if you had the red or magenta or something like that, it would be who who could sort of talk the longest and the loudest would claim all those hits. Of course. So, <laughs> uh, but, but again, you know, it, uh, it was multi-purpose. You know, when you think we got the, got the aircraft for a particular role, modified that, then, then threw in a bit of photography, then threw in, you know, target towing and stuff, and you think, I think we got our money's worth out of it. We made good use of them. Yeah. And and to finish on a more sombre note, we did lose a couple, didn't we? Yes, yeah. Um, in Vietnam, we did. Um, one was shot by a missile, and uh, fortunately the, the pilot and the navigator were able to eject and were safe. Uh, and then, unfortunately, we lost another one, and we did lose the crew. And... Uh, I think, you know, they have been able to recover the remains of that many years later mm-hmm. and hopefully that has brought some closure to the family that mm. they were able to bring that home. And 
and for the squadron, they still remember that. Yeah. Um, and even, I mean, that was two squadron Canberras, and now two squadron is the Airborne Early Warning Squadron. And the relationship between the, the Canberra two squadron people and the two squadron AEW and C is extremely strong. Mm. It's wonderful. And look, it's so glad that you made it through that whole experience to talk about it today, but we do acknowledge, you know, that uh, this was obviously war and uh, this is uh, the fact of the matter that uh, one crew was lost and two aircraft, yeah. yeah. And uh, thank you very much for talking to me today, Peter. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Gary. Helicopters, helicopters, helicopters. January the 21st, 2023 is the Queensland Air Museum Helicopters Open Day. Don't miss it. Between 10 and 4 that day, it's going to be all helicopters. We'll have all of our military and civilian helicopters open with guides who have flown in or worked on these aircraft and have great stories to tell. We'll run engines, we'll have helicopter simulators and other activities for the kids. You'll be able to book a joy flight over Caloundra in one of the Ocean View Robinson helicopters and so much more. Mark your diary now, January the 21st, 2023, for the QAM Helicopters Open Day. See you there. A couple of times um, up in the living quarters, I think it was twice, some stray mortars came. The, the NVA got a little bit lucky mm. and dropped a couple. But n- apart from the fly screens being blown in and a bit of dust, no one was particularly, no one was mm. hurt as mm. such. So um, you talk with a great deal of pride about what you achieved and how well you maintained these aircraft and kept the sorties operating Um, in very hard conditions for everyone very difficult conditions for the aircraft obviously as well how did the canberras cope with uh, that level of demand and the heat and you know the quick turnarounds and so on were they were they up for the job they were bearing in mind let's face it they were an old aircraft at that stage yes but um, our Canberra uh, performed particularly well. The, the servicing for us engine fitters, one thing that did cause uh, a lot of work was the fuel pumps, the double D fuel pumps. Now, the double D fuel pump was built by Lucas Rotax, and we in Australia and in England flew with Avtur a perfect fuel that had uh, designed for the aircraft fuel pumps. However, in, in with the Americans, they get um, JP4, I think it is, 100 octane, and they throw the odd bucket of oil into it to add some sort of lubrication. So hence, if you see a lot of the older American jets, this giant plume of black, black smoke whereas you saw no smoke from behind, Canberras or Sabres or Mirage even. Mm. So, but the fuel pumps 
as a result of JP4 had half-life. Mm. And I can tell you, changing a double-D pump in a revetment where the temperature of the day is 50 degrees in a revetment and it was the inboard, the port engine because the pump was between the fuse, uh, up against the engine and the fuselage and it was very difficult to change whereas the starboard side, the wing pulled away and it was easy to change the starboard pump. But that was the main thing we had to... So changing fuel pumps in the field and, as I said, in a 50-degree day, so you could last about 10 minutes and after 10 minutes in the Bombay working mm. or in the, the revetted area you needed to get out... I'll add an, a funny to this. One day we'd been uh, working in the revetment, servicing an aircraft during the day. Anyway, um, the lads, the team were with me, four or five, said, how about we, we get a Coke? And I said, yeah, I was sergeant at the time. And, um, yeah, let's get a Coke. And they said, last of the Coke machine. <laughs> Boys are all looking at me, go, I'm I'm 33 years of age, and all these kids are in their early 20s, 20, 21, 22, and thought, here's an easy, he buys all the coats. <laughs> what they didn't know when I was younger, I was even time for 100 yards. <laughs> so I was standing at the coat machine <laughs> when they arrived. <laughs> Oh, Sarge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you didn't tell us about that. But, but all in all, it was um, a very rewarding tour that for me came to an end about almost two months earlier than my repatriation date would have been. A couple of things happened. Just occasionally we would get a break and... Um, like the army used to get, they used to come down from Nui Dat down to the beach at Vung Tau and there was a bit of a beach at Fan Rang. Anyway, uh, armed services put in a boat there and you could go down there. Believe it or not, in a war zone, you could go water skiing. Mm. Anyway... Um, this day we had a, a short amount of time off and the ADGs got a big truck, which we had a couple of big trucks. What's an ADG? Air, Air, Australian Aerodrome Defence Guard. They were, of course, all loaded up with guns and rifles and ammunition and the whole works, and they took about six of us down to the beach, the, the shift that I was on. And whilst water skiing, I, I slipped up. I've, I hit the sand and hurt myself a bit. Mm. I didn't realise how badly at the time. Anyway, got back and had a lovely day at the beach. And maybe about a couple of weeks later, we were doing a quick turnaround at night. Now, what would happen there? Canberra would come in from a sortie and taxi up in front of the revetments and Armourer would open the rear camera hatch, look in through the bomb bay to make sure that all the bombs were clear from the bomb racks. Right. And you could see the wingtips. Then the engines would be shut down, or the bomb bay would be then open and the engines shut down. Then a tractor would back the aircraft into the revetment for refuelling and rearming. 
attract. I I had my flak jacket on like all of us did at night, and I leaned down to get the tow bar that had been connected to the aircraft to hook onto the tractor with one hand, and normally you can just lift it up and clip it on, but the tractor had gone a bit far over the towing, and as I lifted, it didn't come up, but my back gave out. So I carried on, believe it or not, with the for that night and next day I went up to see the doctor. So this relates to the uh, water skiing accident? Yeah, too, you think? yeah yes, okay. and this aggravated it. I see. Anyway, um, the doctor saw it and he said, I'll lay down for a couple of days. And I thought, okay. So I laid down, and you can't lay down when you've got a team. So I went back to work and it just got worse and mm. worse. Anyway... Um, he decided he'd better take me up to the American hospital. They x-rayed me and said, you're finished, Buster. You're on your way to hospital. Mm. So that afternoon, uh, Hercules, believe it or not, was due in. And Hercules picked me up in an overnight bag. I was on a stretcher. Took me down to um, Bung Tao where they picked up a heap of army guys wounded that had been stabilised enough to go to Butterworth, to the hospital. So away we went to Butterworth. Or did you have a fractured spine or something? No, I'd pulled two discs apart Uh. and a nerve had gone in Uh. and it was jammed. But before I go any further, there's a good one that you've got to hear, Gary. This is before this happened. Canberra taxied in during, it had been a day strike for the army. As it taxied in, I marshaled the aircraft in. I pulled it up and the engines kept running while the armourer went in under the back of the aircraft, opened the camera hatch, looked inside, Mm. checked the bomb racks, Mm -hmm. got down and went, thumbs Thumbs up, up. she's right. And, of course... They opened the uh, no, it was the bomb day door opening, uh, move arms open. Okay, bomb do- and as the bomb door opened, the two doors opened, a 750 pound bomb went clunk. The look on my face must have said to the pilot, Close it. I, 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 I was just stunned. This big 750 pounder had obviously been hung up when the bombs were dropped. Yes. But flying back, it had dropped the, uh, say, three feet off the rack into the bomb doors. And it was lying on the doors. It was, and fortunately, because a bomb's not armed until it leaves the aircraft and a pin is pulled by a cable. Excuse me. The pilot got out and said, what's wrong? The engines had stopped. Mm. <laughs> what? You pointed to the... the uh, I don't think they could find the armour for a while. So it was not visible to him because it had dropped down onto it, it, the doors. It, instead of... Mm. He just looked straight at the yes. bomb racks. Yes. From that point on, everybody had a look inside. But the amazing part was when we started using 750-pounders... The Americans told us they'd had some casualties where 750s had been dropped from 10 feet loading onto aircraft 
and that the explosive inside the bomb had fractured and the bombs had exploded mm. and killed people. Mm. So they said, treat them with... But fortunately, the distance it had dropped was evidently not enough to damage the bomb. So how was the bomb safely retrieved at that point? Oh, the armourers just turned up and got cradles and got mm. it out. Oh, the, the, the bomb would have been taken away and probably s- safely disposed of. Steele, this has been fascinating and, and, you know, I feel like saying thank you for your service and thank you for the work you did there and, the, uh, you know, the pride in your voice about the work that you were doing and making sure that your aircraft were in tip-top shape. I mean, you hear these stories about the... Uh, the LAC is saying to the pilots, don't break my aeroplane, you know, <laughs> and what have you done to my aeroplane yeah, and so yeah. on because you, you take a certain proprietary pride in that aircraft, don't you, having worked on it and Most sweated definitely. over it and bled and yep. so on. Thank you so much, Steele. We'll pick up this story again, but uh, for now let's just take a break. So that's our episode. Don't forget you can check out the full provenance of the QAM camera, number 225, on our website, Queensland Air Museum website, under Collections, meticulously put together by QAM historian Ron Cuskelly. And better yet, if you haven't already come in to visit us and to see 225 for yourself, along with some 80 aircraft of all stripes at the Queensland Air Museum, come on down to 7 Pathfinder Drive, Caloundra, any day between 10 and 4, except Christmas Day and Easter Friday. Thank you for listening. Next week in the penultimate episode for Season 2, yes, that's right, folks, we're near the end of Season 2, you're going to hear my conversation with centenarian, yes, I said centenarian, 100-year-old Merv Draffin. Dave Dunlop and I sat down and talked with Merv, uh, and you're going to hear his recollections uh, as an RAAF pilot Uh, serving in an RAF squadron in Burma during the Second World War, flying Wimpies, the the Wellingtons. So that's Merv Draffin next week. And then the following week, our final episode is a real treat. I'll tell you more about that next week. Come in and see us soon. Bye for now.